Libraries, the federal government, and the future of environmental history in Canada. You know, it, it appears that a lot of this stuff was just uh, given away or taken away. I mean, and some of it was extraordinarily uh, valuable. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 41 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. In 2012, the Canadian federal government began closing and consolidating many of its departmental libraries. More than a dozen research libraries have closed at Parks Canada, Environment Canada, Natural Resources Canada, Foreign Affairs, Citizenship and Immigration, Human Resources and Skills Development, the National Capital Commission, Intergovernmental Affairs, Public Works and Government Services, Canada Revenue Agency, Transport, Infrastructure and Communities, and Canadian Heritage. And in December, the government began closing all but four of its 11 Department of Fisheries and Oceans libraries. News reports across the country showed startling images of books and other documents lying in dumpsters with rumors that others may have been burned. The culling of these libraries involved what has been described as a haphazard free-for-all, with members of the public and industry scooping up abandoned books and valuable so-called grey literature unique intergovernmental publications. The process of library consolidation and closure seems to have happened so quickly that books that were still out on loan weren't even recalled. And beyond the loss of material, we still don't know the full extent of the personnel losses. As library staff get laid off, valuable human knowledge vanishes along with the books. One thing that stands out in this troubling story is the degree to which the library closures have targeted scientific and environmental research branches of the government. These libraries housed historical research materials of great relevance to Canada's environmental history, and as such, they're likely to have a detrimental impact on our ability to know about the past. We decided then on this episode to find out more about this issue by speaking with Andrew Nikiforik, a writer and journalist for the TIE.ca, who has written extensively on this topic. I also sat down with a panel of environmental historians to get their take on the potential impact these closures might have on Canadian environmental history. Uh, so, Andrew, thanks for joining us uh, here to tell us a little bit about uh, the, the reporting you've been doing on the closure of uh, federal fisheries and other federal libraries. Can you just set up a little bit of the context to explain what's been happening uh, to these libraries across Canada? Well, it, it's, it's a large story that involves nearly a dozen, excuse me, two dozen um, specialized federal libraries um, that serve various departments in government. So, for example, Parks Canada used to have five libraries. Now they have one. Um, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans used to have 11 libraries. Um, they have closed seven, and now they have two central locations actually remaining um, and two smaller locations. So uh, this has been a really dramatic downsizing of, the, of, of uh, federal libraries that are critically important. I mean, you've got to look upon them as, as public infrastructure, uh, intellectual capital, if you will, uh, that is serving policymakers uh, as well as federal scientists. Now, we're seeing and, in reports uh, across the country photographs of books and other documents in dumpsters. When you say downsizing, are we talking about the destruction of records? Well, that's what the big debate is about. Um, the federal government itself, in a secret memo, has described 
the um, the closure of the uh, scientific libraries at the Department of Fisheries and, and Oceans as a culling. And it happened so quickly and so haphazardly that books on loan were not called back, that uh, a lot of material ended up in dumpsters and went off to the landfill or in some cases might even have been burned. Uh, the public was invited actually to come in and scavenge through what remained of the Eric Marshall Aquatic Research Library in Winnipeg, which is really one of the world's largest and best freshwater uh, libraries. And uh, so, there, you know, scientists were not consulted uh, about this process. There is no clarity about what was saved and what was thrown out. And there is no clarity. Uh, I, I mean, scientists are, are most concerned about the fate of gray literature. Now, gray literature mm-hmm. um, are those reports and documents and theses and conference proceedings uh, written by academics and technicians and scientists that really have no commercial publisher. And there's tens and thousands of these documents, and some of them are extremely vital and contain really good baseline data on the state of a particular river or fishery or whatever. Uh, and the government said that they were digitizing. Well, the, gov- the government doesn't have the copyright to digitize these materials, so mm-hmm. it is unclear what happened to them. And scientists fear that in many cases it was, it was simply thrown out. Do you have a yeah. sense of any other kind of documents or records that are being potentially lost or are going missing? Well, you know, there at, at, uh, at the Freshwater Institute, uh, the Freshwater Institute Library, uh, or the it's also known as the Eric Marshall Aquatic Research Library in Winnipeg, um, had you know phenomenal collection of stuff. I mean, they had a lot of material associated with the Berger Commission dating back to the 1970s and, and Arctic gas exploration and a lot of really good baseline data on rivers and, and, and lakes and, and in that region. Uh, they had a remarkable collection of, of, of just a, a rare books uh, mm-hmm. and diaries by, by Arctic explorers that all contained you know, pretty important information about the state of, uh, of a lot of fresh waterways. And you know, it, it appears that a lot of this stuff was just uh, given away or taken away. I mean, and some of it was extraordinarily uh, valuable. Um, again, we, we do not know what was culled. We do not know what was consolidated. We do not know what was shipped off to the two remaining uh, central libraries. Uh, and scientists fear that all, all the stuff that was boxed would, might not, never even get out of boxes and, and will be lost forever. So it seems clear, though, that there hasn't been a lot of disclosure um, from the federal government on the, this process of consolidation of the libraries and elimination of records. Uh, where are you getting your sources as you're doing the reporting on this story? My sources have been scientists who use these libraries and depend on them on a regular basis, and my sources have also been librarians who uh, were responsible for these libraries. Right. Um, and so I've got a story coming out actually in, in a couple of days about um, a librarian talking about the whole experience and how chaotic and rushed it was and how unrealistic the, the timelines were. I mean, the government said, look, we're closing this down. Uh, we're going to close seven major libraries containing hundreds of thousands of material, and we're going to consolidate them into two remaining libraries. And to do that, we're going to have to cull material from from these two libraries to make room from the seven libraries we're consolidating. And, we're, and by the way, we're going to do that in, in, in practically less than a year. Wow. So, you know, um, it's, uh, most of the librarians and scientists I've talked to say this is completely unprecedented. They say that it has absolutely nothing to do with money because it only costs about $430,000 a year mm-hmm. to operate these, these libraries. 
Meanwhile, the federal government is spending $40 million a year on uh, global PR to uh, advertise the tar sands as, you know, as a form of responsible development, when in fact Canada has no effective climate action change plan, and uh, we've trashed a lot of our freshwater science <laughs> programs and gutted uh, you know, our three major pieces of environmental legislation. So it, it's a pretty extraordinary situation. And what it really represents is that we, you know, we're seeing a major shift in how the government operates and, and its mandates, and we're seeing a real move towards minimalist government uh, and um, uh, by, by a government that, uh, frankly, does not believe in government. I mean, Stephen Harper mm-hmm. doesn't believe the federal government should play a significant role in setting public policy. He thinks business in the marketplace should be doing that. So does that take us partly to explaining why the, uh, the government is taking this action? I think that explains uh, part of the reason. Um, I think, you know, a part of it is, is that, you know, you've got a lot of bureaucrats who are so fearful of the government that they're trying to, to, to achieve something they can't really achieve in the timelines they were given, mm-hmm. and so you end up with a botched process. I think, I mean, there are a number uh, of things that, that have gone on here. Um, and then I think you also have, you know, a very strong ideological position by, uh, by the conservative government uh, and a strong belief that really, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be operating uh, these kind of science research stations, uh, and if we're, uh, such as the Experimental Lakes area. And if we're not operating them, then we, we don't need libraries that were set up to serve this research. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we're just going to shut them down, and we're going to reorient the government uh, towards different things, and that is you know, supporting corporations, um, uh, fish farming, or, or whatever is on the government's agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess one of the ironies is that these libraries actually did serve some corporate interests. The research that federal fishery scientists, at least, have long been used for for the industry itself. So there's certainly a, a kind of loss there. There's a huge loss, you know, because uh, the St. Andrews Biological Station had a phenomenal library that had been newly renovated and, and uh, climate controlled and the whole bit, and it served a very important contaminant research program at the St. Andrews Biological Station. That contaminant research program is gone. Um, the Experimental Lakes area in, um, in, uh, at the Freshwater Institute was one of the world's most famous uh, uh, facilities for studying the effect of pollutants and contaminants on freshwater. That's gone. And now the library that served it is also gone. Um, they had a, a phenomenal ocean uh, marine uh, uh, facility at the Northwest Atlantic Fisheries Center in St. John's, mm-hmm. uh, critical for studying the cod fishery, that's gone. So um, there's a pattern here. I mean, you, you, the, the government has not just, you know, gotten rid of a whole bunch of libraries. It has uh, uh, done away with the research field stations that these libraries served at the same time that it has rewritten uh, the uh, the nation's uh, environmental legislation, diminishing and downgrading it to the point that you know the mandate, for example, to protect fish habitat is gone. I mean, it was, it's mm-hmm. been removed from the Fisheries Act. Mm-hmm. So if you're changing things at just a fundamental lo- level like that, um, and uh, and you're a member of the Harper government, and think, okay, well, we don't have to worry about fish habitat anymore. Then what do we need freshwater or science for, and uh, and fishery science for? 
and what the hell do we need libraries supporting those scientists for? And I guess from your perspective, what do you see as the consequences of this policy and the closure of these uh, libraries and the loss of these resources? Well, uh, I mean, I think what we're seeing is the dismantling of critical public infrastructure that taxpayers built over decades for very powerful geographical reasons. I mean, we have the longest coastline in the world. We have... uh, uh, we we hold and protect some of uh, some of the world's largest collection of of fresh water, uh, and so there's a reason why we had these research stations, and there's a reason why we had libraries dedicated uh, to the study, protection, and history of our oceans, fresh water, and fish, mm-hmm. and that's part of our heritage as a country. Um, to dismantle that and chuck a lot of it away. Um, you know, is it's what scientists have called a national tragedy, and information destruction um, uh, uh, unbecoming for a democracy. Uh, and you know, we we are a diminished country for this. And I mean, the rest of the world is is, is watching this, and and they're appalled, frankly. They think, you know, why would a democracy uh, in in the so-called information age do away with so much? Uh, of of its of its of its uh, of its history, and and so much critical information about the state of its waterways. There are other implications here too. I mean, it, mm-hmm. in, in terms of court co- uh, cases and upholding uh, public pol- what you know existing pol- public policy protecting fish or environment. You know, if you need documents to to help enforce the law, mm-hmm. they were in these libraries, and where are they now? Um, and that was certainly a big issue in the United States when the George Bush administration um, did exactly the same thing as the Harper government and dismantled libraries at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. So where can listeners go to read more uh, about what you've written and what you will be writing about this, uh, this important uh, public issue? Well, uh, listeners can, can go to the tie, T-Y-E-E dot C-A, and you can read... Uh, uh, various stories that I've written about uh, scientists and librarians talking about um, the significance and importance of, of what has been done, um, and uh, um, you know it's, it's it's a good source of information. That's great. Thanks so much for uh, letting us uh, know a little bit more about this story, Andrew. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for your interest. Okay, this is Stephen Bocking, and I'm with the Environmental and Resource Science Studies Program at Trent University. Hi, I'm Alan McCacker, and I teach history at Western University. Hi, I'm Jennifer Hubbard. I teach history of science and technology at Ryerson University. Hi, this is Will Knight. I've just completed my PhD in Canadian history and environmental history at Carleton University in Ottawa. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Dean Bavington. I uh, teach in the geography department at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, taking a little bit of time to sit down and uh, talk about um, these uh, closures of federal libraries across uh, several different departments of the federal government uh, and to discuss the potential impact that this is uh, 
uh, might have on environmental history research in Canada. So I wanted to begin the conversation uh, by getting a sense of uh, the degree to which you uh, have used the resources in these federal libraries. And maybe uh, I'll start with Will, uh, who wrote an article recently for Active History about the library closures and the fishery libraries. What's been your experience working in these libraries and what kind of materials were you using? Sure. So I've used um, the library at the Nanaimo, Nanaimo Biological Station. I've also used other federal libraries as well. So I, I just will will point to those as well. Uh, I've done research in the Department of Agriculture Library, which I believe is now closed as well. As well. And I've also done a fair a, a lot of research actually recently in the uh, libraries of the uh, of the national museums here and um, and that that is another fear of mine too that those will be affected by these uh by these uh, closures and and cutbacks um the research that i did at nanaimo biological station library uh that's going on 7 years now but it was uh it was uh and i was actually doing research on behalf of Stephen uh, for his aquaculture research project and i mean that was it was i've described that library as a treasure trove and i'm sure people who worked in in the other libraries would agree i mean these were just such a rich resource of not just books but uh of, of gray literature and that's really been i think the the major concern with the uh, the closure of of these libraries is that there's just this this wealth of of kind of inaccessible or uncatalogued information. Uh, Jennifer, you've worked in fishery libraries, is that right? I have. I also worked at the Nanaimo uh, Library, and it was in fact a, just a wonderful location. Um, and it's a huge disappointment that it's it's been closed. I, I've done archival research there because they also had a lot of um, documents that they'd retained from letters and so on. And I have no idea if it's gone into the National Archives, it's gone into a kind of black hole now. What are the sort of materials that you were using in that library? What are the kind of things that uh, might be lost or inaccessible now? Well, I share um, Alan's concern that it's got, you know, you're losing the gray literature, that it's hard to catalog, that there's material that's not easily accessible. And just also the physical proximity of this material um, so that you can see how it was organized um, you know, it's it's a huge loss. Now, Alan, you've used um, the Parks Canada libraries. Can you give us a sense about uh, uh, what what kind of research materials you were finding there, and how are you using that for historical research? Sure, um, I got to say that closure is almost historical itself at this point. Now, it was um, I used it up until about ten years ago. Uh, it was in Hull, which is now Gatineau, I guess, and. The Parks Canada Library was a wonderful um, place to do research because it had uh, so much, as you'd expect, as Will said, of, in terms of uh, what's called gray literature, the internal literature of the Department of Parks Canada. It also had a great um, secondary literature as well. It also had, I think, material that was essentially archival that was just sitting in the library shelves there. And I just came back one time to visit it, and the library was gone. And as I said, that was almost 10 years ago now, probably. And the staff that was remaining in front of a couple terminals were, were rather sheepish because it, it, was, it was clear that some of the material had made it back to Library and Archives Canada. Um, but it was also clear that they weren't really clear themselves where some of the material had ended up. 
So there is some archival material that exists outside of Library and Archives Canada in each of these departmental libraries, uncatalogued or uh, catalogued? I think this was catalog. I think this. I think the material I'm talking about was was kind of a one of a kind material that probably should have made it to the archives, but I, I, my guess is it didn't. Uh, uh, with luck, it made it to the library, but but uh, it's hard to say where some of it ended up. So, Dean, where have you? Where has your research come into contact with these this, these types of repositories and these collections? Yeah, um, mainly the DFO library in in Ottawa and uh, the one here in St. John's. Um, I guess most of my uh, most of my I guess concern about these these closures now has to do with um, something that I was just made aware of by a former student that worked at the Department of Fisheries and Oceans here in St. John's, and that is where the um, the pre-confederation fisheries archive um, documents have gone now with this um, the closure of the the St. John the library here in St. John's and the consolidation of materials in Halifax um, so there's a whole pre-confederation fishery science and history now that's we're not basically there's a lot of uncertainty about where these documents are and they are not um, available at the provincial archives, the rooms, or at uh, Memorial University's uh, Center for Newfoundland Studies. So um, I guess in general, there's just a lot of uncertainty. And what I'm, it seems that there's a lot of ad hoc sort of um, saving that's been going on by the librarians when they found out that the closures were coming. And then, um, but since since the closures have been enacted, there's basically very little communication, well, none occurring now from those librarians, former librarians, because they're if they're still within the the age of the the department, they're mm -hmm. basically under gag orders. I mean, they can't speak about it. So uh, what I've been hearing is that to find out any more information, at least here on the the St. John's case, we're going to have to get into. Uh, freedom of information requests, um, but maybe we can talk about that a little later. <laughs> so when we're talking about pre-Confederation, <clears throat> are we talking about pre-1949 for Newfoundland, or are we talking about earlier in the 19th century? Well, pre-Confederation uh, pre with Newfoundland in 1949, which would include both uh, the commission of government state phase with just prior to 1949 and Newfoundland joining Canada, but also the responsible government um, phase and the colonial period before that. So mm -hmm. it's uh, in 1949, all of those documents became under the purview of the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Um, so th that's uh, as when they were created in, in 1977. But it became a federal responsibility after 1949. And Stephen, in your research, what kind of materials were you coming across in these federal libraries? Well, my experience has been uh, kind of corresponding to that of Will and Jennifer, using mainly the Pacific uh, Biological Station Library in uh, in Nanaimo. And I've only had a excuse me a chance so far to do a, kind of a sampling of that library and get a sense of what's available there. So. My next visit out to BC, I'm planning to visit the um, Institute for Ocean Sciences Library in Sydney, uh, 
mm-hmm. near Victoria, which is one of the two DFO libraries that is scheduled to remain open and to receive everything that's been called from the other libraries. And I'm really wondering what uh, I'm going to be fine when I get there because that kind of thinking about the just what other folks have just said now about a about uncertainty about what now exists and also just the ad hoc and rushed and unplanned nature of the whole process because uh, like this is one of the the two surviving DFO libraries but according to the DFO docs that have been made available uh, like especially the Andrew Nikoforik I think posted on in one of his articles mm-hmm. they said that the DFO policy has been to cull those existing libraries, those surviving libraries as well, to make room for materials from the, the closed library. So what is what is to be found in that library will remain to be seen. And I'm especially struck too by how DFO has said that they are calling the materials to correspond to uh, the DFO's mandate. And of course, the DFO itself has really sharply restricted its mandate over the last year or two, you know, like as the, the Fisheries Act has been radically restricted. So there's a lot of stuff now that the DFO in itself would probably decide is no longer relevant to its mandate, but that mm-hmm. historically has been really important to its mandate. So there's this kind of real extra layer of uncertainty about what's being saved, I think, that's imposed by the fact that the DFO's current policy is, is much less than it once was. So well, Can I add to that? that um, I visited also the Bedford Institute of Oceanography, where the Atlantic material mm-hmm. was being put a few years ago. and. Uh, one of the scientists there who was trying to get this library to save some of his stuff said that they didn't want it because they didn't have room for it. So I'm not quite sure where they're going to put all this stuff from the uh, St. Andrews Biological Station or from St. John's either. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to add to, to Jennifer's, that was my impression of the Nanaimo uh, Library when I visited, and that's going on seven years now. But that that this was also there was a sense that it was an informal archive too that people uh, you know retiring or scientists retiring were leaving some of their materials with the library and you could see those you know piled on top of uh, of uh, filing cabinets and you just had a sense that there was actually more in that library than was than was catalogued and so that I think there was you know there's there's probably stuff we don't even know has been you know what's been lost and I think that just goes to speak to uh, you know to Dean's point about just the the amount of uncertainty that uh, that surrounds this entire entire issue. Well, one of the reasons I brought this panel together was to give listeners a sense of the degree to which historians use these libraries. A lot of the public debate over the closures has focused on scientific data and their availability for um, scientific researchers and industry researchers. Um, But you've given us a sense here that these libraries actually contain a really rich collection of historical archival materials, much of which is not accessible from uh, the National Archives in Ottawa. Um, or, or any of the university libraries uh, or regional archives. Um, maybe if we can, if anybody wants to jump in and give us a sense of what impact you might anticipate the closure of such federal libraries might have on environmental history research in Canada. Uh, well, I'll jump in with a quick comment. Um, in the project I'm working on that's most relevant to this discussion is my history of uh, salmon farming science on, in British Columbia. And mm-hmm. One of the thing, the kinds of information that are really useful for that are uh, records of environmental change since the 1970s up and down the coast. Um, the internal documents produced by the DFO as it's communicating with the 
with the BC government and within itself as to when it's developing policy for the for this new industry. Like these are very informal documents that are often only made in one or just a few copies, and so mm-hmm. they're not likely to be asked for by anybody outside, and so they would not be seen as being in demand, and so would not likely be digitized mm-hmm. or even kept. Um, these records of environmental change, like uh, 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 local changes in, in um, oceanographic conditions or local fish abundance and so on, they, they'll never be published. Uh, environmental assessments of individual salmon farms, those kinds of things, that, among other things, are really useful in understanding why the salmon farming industry, for example, decided to shift up the coast a couple of hundred kilometers in the 1980s. Like That was a real radical change for the industry. And, need to figure out why that shift happened. Um, and there's speculation about that, but understanding what environmental conditions the salmon farmers were actually dealing with is really a big part of that puzzle. And if those records are, are chucked, then we'll really never know about that aspect of the environmental history of the industry. Well, and I, I could just build on that because I'm starting to look at the the history of the salmon farming industry here in Newfoundland, which has started much later. And without that, we always look to BC for the history of how the industry developed there to learn lessons uh, on the East Coast. And again, I'm seeing with with the loss of that that story and the details of the story, there can't be these lessons learned, including in very practical or what we think to be practical and pragmatic policy research. Um, and I think this goes back to something that Stephen was was mentioning around the already hollowed out or cut back DFO um, structure. And I think what we've seen is really a a gutting of the regulatory arm of the of the agency in favor of the development arm, which um, and I think that the types of policy policy focused on regulation and and sort of um, controlling uh, controlling industry and development that could potentially harm uh, fish habitat um, to you know, enabling the development of projects that may impact on fish habitat um, for the oil, for energy industry, but also for the, the promotion of aquaculture um, mm-hmm. within within the agency. And I think it those within DFO that are developing aquaculture um, tend to come from a, a, a background more focused on business uh, economics uh, side of things, and they don't tend to have much respect for history because they're thinking about developing things, progress. Whereas the regulatory arm, they were very, very much interested in history and the types of data that was there in that side. So I think we're also seeing sort of neoliberalism at play here with the rolling back of regulations and the rolling out of development and how history is seen by those two functions of the state. Hey Sean, can I yeah. follow up with a follow up to that about uh, to what Dean has said about data, and I think a related point to this is that these I, I'll use the Environment Canada um, library in Downsview as my example, but I'm I'm sure that this probably um, I'm sure this feeds in different ways for different uh, government libraries across Canada. Um, when I visited the Downsview office uh, a number of years ago, I found that they had a, a large, what was clearly an archival collection, including 
every meteorological observation from 1840 was sitting in paper copy down in their basement. And they'd been trying for um, on and off for about 40 years to get that to Library and Archives Canada. And for a variety of reasons, Library and Archives Canada wasn't ready to accept it because even though it seemed quite obviously to everyone, or at least everyone at the Environment Canada side as nationally significant, um, these were hundreds of thousands of pages of, of observations, which means forms, which means data. And to I think in the 1970s, at least, to those working in libraries and archives Canada, it didn't, it didn't feel archival. It didn't look archival. And my sense is that these government libraries possess a lot of material that we would now recognize as being of archival value. Uh, but they're, they're in their libraries because for a variety of reasons, but one reason being that they never made their way to Library and Archives Canada. And maybe Jennifer, if you want to give us a sense of, of how you think these kinds of restrictions on access to federal library materials might affect environmental history research. Well, I have to agree with what has been said already by other panelists, that we're losing access to past data that will... Um, as as Dean was saying, you know, for the regulatory side of things, it's actually a very good check on um, whether or not there have been mistakes made in the past and what steps were made to remediate these mistakes in things like aquaculture. And um, in addition, we're also losing information about how the scientists themselves were operating. And you know, the, the historians of science are interested in the motivations. Um, the circumstances in which certain research was occurring, and uh, that information is being lost as well, and it's just going to make uh, historians' research impossible. And, and this is a very unfortunate because it's at a time when the um, fishery science is turning to history in general. Um, there's a lot more interest in the history of the discipline, the history of the research that's been done, and uh, historical reconstruction going back to the 19th century of fish stocks. And uh, this is being rendered impossible in Canada. So can any of these materials be found um, in sort of comparable or duplicate copy in university libraries or provincial archives or, uh, or in Library and Archives Canada? Or are we talking about materials that are only available in the libraries that are closing? Can I jump in there? Sure. Uh, U of T used to have a um, library in the zoology department, um, which got closed down some point in the late 90s or early 2000s, and I was totally unaware of it, the closing at the time. But it had um, the Huntsman Room, which was full of gray literature. It's just a fabulous research location, but it's, it's all gone, and I have no idea where the information went. I know a few of the journals went into the, um, the ROM, but where most of the material mm -hmm. ended up, I don't know, and I think quite a bit of it must have been dumped. Yeah, that's, I think... Um the great fear is we don't know what's what's gone. We don't know what's been digitized. And just to circle back to your last question, Sean, mm -hmm. I uh, proposed for a postdoc project a study of uh, of marine of uh, marine vermin of, of uh, eradication and control efforts to control populations of like cormorants and seals and dogfish. And uh, it's that kind of the the gray literature I, I found is is really usually um, the stuff that I've encountered is really local, like really uh, dealing with local specific uh, uh, problems, and that's the sort of information 
and documents that that I'm going to need to uh, to access to complete this project. And all of a sudden, the closure of these libraries and the consolidation of the material and no real sense of where this has gone and what's been lost really throws, you know, that project uh, it gives me doubt about about my ability to carry that out. Well, do we know of any salvage efforts? Uh, are any of the university libraries getting involved in trying to acquire some of the material before it's either um, uh, destroyed or uh, or warehoused in an inaccessible manner? I could talk to that for a moment, Sean. Um, sure. Um, after coming upon these meteorological records at Western, or excuse me, at Environment Canada, Downsview's office, um, I started talking to them about whether or not that they would consider a long-term loan of this material to Western, and um, and it's taken years. I mean, this I first visited Downsview, and you know, because I'm a historian, they take me down to the basement to see their old stuff. It was six years ago that I first visited, and it's taken six years, and we're finally getting to the point now that um, the material is going to come to Western for long-term loan. But I guess I would, I mean, the timing of this just happens to be timing of these library closures. Mm -hmm. But really, I guess I would, I would kind of urge universities now or university researchers that if they're thinking of taking this route, it can, it can take time. I mean, I think it might be speeded up in the present uh, environment, but it takes a long time to work out the deals of an arrangement like this. And even then, I think it's going to be obviously very hit or miss. It's going to happen with some universities and, and, and some libraries, but a lot of times it's, it's, it's just not going to happen. I'll just uh, say a word too about that, that uh, that's been the experience in, uh, at my own university too, that one thing that to encounter very quickly and one try to check about the interest of the university archive in material is that it has to correspond to the archives collection policies and often as often as not uh, it doesn't because that's already defined very much in um, in advance and I think um, university archives generally I think are probably resistant to serve as, a, as an archive of last resort for other archives that are closing and so they would resist being available to receive the leavings from DFO. I also don't think there's been a lot of communication between, you know, I don't think that we had a lot of advance warning that this was going to happen. Mm -hmm. The decision was made the um, summer before last, and things were gone by last year. So... I know the Canadian Association of Research Libraries is trying to get that straightened out now, exactly. Um, who was contacted at universities? Because there's words that universities have been contacted, but whether the right people at universities or even the libraries or archives at, uh, at universities were contacted is another question. And they're trying to they're they're trying to find the history of that now to figure out exactly um, what they were what they knew and when they knew it. I think the um, the salvage effort, if there has been anything, has been really um, haphazard. I mean, I've heard that, uh, and I think Andrew Nikiforic has reported on this, and I've heard from a separate source as well, that um, library material that were in people's offices weren't recovered. And so that material, it's sort of inadvertent or random salvage, right? It's, it's material that hasn't been returned to the to the library in, in time for that material to be cleared away. So that's a sort of, um, uh, you know, speaks to, I think, the kind of the sloppy way that this has been done. And I just wanted to, to, to um, uh, John Dupuy, the 
science librarian at York and, mm -hmm. and science blogger, you know, noted that that uh, culling and consolidation is a part of normal library operations. And so, uh, but the issue for him, and I think we need to, you know, keep in mind is that it's just been such, you know, it was, it just seems so quickly done without any, um, without any uh, transparency, without any uh, advice from from uh, stakeholders in it, and that then it's been carried out in a sloppy and haphazard manner. And you know, we I think we've all seen the photograph of of the the material dumped into the bin into the dumpster in the uh, in the Quebec Library, and that mm -hmm. I think has you know caused a lot of uh, of uh, of justified fear about how this has been done. Yeah, and we'll link uh, uh, listeners to John Dupuy's writing on this uh, on this issue for sure. Um, I, I maybe want to pose a new question for the group, and maybe one that's a little bit more complicated, um, but highly relevant, I think, for our listeners. And, and that is what role environmental historians should play as a research community in terms of responding to the library closures. Um, does anybody want to, to provide a little bit of feedback on that question of what kind of response there should be from the research community? With, um, it's funny, Sean, that, that question actually prompted me um, to follow the advice I was going to give here, and that was to write their MPs and the Prime Minister and the Minister of Fisheries, which I did uh, this morning because I, you know, I'd written um, a blog post for Active History and for Stephen Stevens' blog about about the uh, about the issue, and I realized after you know it, we need to make our views known to uh, to uh, to politicians. And um, there's actually, a, a, and this is maybe a link that you can put up. There's also a petition at uh, evidenceforDemocracy.ca about about the library closures. So those are sort of like kind of um, quick and easy things to do. Yeah, I, I was able um, to ask, um, not directly, um, but I was able to ask the, the, the librarians here uh, at DFO, you know, what would be an appropriate response here? And anybody that sort of knows how the government decision-making was made is saying that there would have had to be a plan put forward a uh, quite detailed plan to to have the closures and that this plan would would have outlined you know where these materials were to go so even though it certainly appears now because of all the uncertainty and the in many ways the production of ignorance around what's happened that we haven't uh, maybe the first step on the the or what i've been told is to start and what I'm going to take on is to start learning about freedom of information requests and how to actually word an appropriately uh, an appropriately worded freedom of information requests that can get the information that we need to find those those internal planning documents um, but again that's that's just what what I've been advised by people on the inside if we want to find out that would be the first step and i imagine it's it's journalists that have the, that expertise i'm thinking some others another step that might be useful would be to uh uh perhaps reach out and make some kind of common cause with scientists because so much of what we're working on is similar to what scientists are working on in the sense that historians are using scientific information and a lot of scientists as jennifer uh mentioned are using historical information, and scientists have had huge success in getting this 
this whole issue of closures on the public agenda, and it would make sense to kind of add our add the voice of historians to that voice that already exists out there in the public. The problem is, of course, that they're afraid to put their names to this. I, I had an, a scientist contact me, mm. wishing to remain anonymous if the information went further, that uh, he tested my assertion that about 20% of the grave literature is missing. Uh, he randomly selected six titles, and of them, one was supposed to be at the BIO library, and it wasn't uh, in hard copy, and the five digitized ones, he could only find one. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's just shocking information, but he doesn't want his name attached to it. Well, I suppose for listeners, the first step will be uh, to learn a little bit more about the issue, and hopefully this episode has has taken us a little bit further there. We'll be linking to uh, the writing of several journalists uh, and uh, and others who have been uh, covering the story of the library closures, and I want to thank everyone here for uh, joining us for a little bit to tell us about the impact that this has had or may have on environmental history research in Canada. Thanks, thanks Sean. Thanks, thanks, thanks Sean. Yes, thank you, Sean. To find out more about the federal library closures and to get involved, visit canadaspastmatters.ca. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Andrew Nikoforic, Dean Babington, Stephen Bocking, Jennifer Hubbard, Will Knight, Alan McEckern, and me, Sean Courage. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate and review this podcast on our iTunes page. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast, and you can now subscribe to the podcast on our new YouTube channel at youtube.com slash naturespast. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche-canada.org, and you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next month with another episode of Nature's Past.